You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, excursions, and more in one place. There are over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from, so you can find something for everyone. And Viator offers free cancellation and 24-7 customer support for worry-free travel. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. I've never been this nervous in my life. Greetings from Longtime No See, the podcast. Every week, we'll be inviting two blindfolded comedians to answer a series of questions about their careers, lives, and opinions. Now, let's remove those blindfolds and start the show. Hi! <laughs> what would your opening line with your celebrity crush be? Loved you in Harry Potter. <laughs> Worst date you've been on? A man bit my neck mole off once. You did what? A man bit my neck mole off. Oh my God, Jack almost fell off his chair. <laughs> be sure to follow and subscribe to the podcast. Hello again. It's the Spark Parade. I'm Adam Unz. Thank you so much for joining me again. So glad you could. I know you have a very busy schedule, and it means a lot to me that you would make time for little old me. Truly, you are the best. So, this week I'm talking to Ryan McAllister, who is the head gardener for Martha Stewart. Crazy, right? but also very exciting. He wanted to talk about Belgian painter and botanist Pierre-Joseph Redoute, as well as Claude Monet, who you may have heard of. If you haven't, he was a French painter and impressionist. Um, If by some crazy chance you have not heard of him, then this will be an excellent jumping off point for you. But before we get to my chat with Ryan, I'm going to talk a little bit about how art is used in careers that aren't, at least on the surface, arty and also the importance of arts education. Ryan talked to me about using botanical artwork in his studies and in his work, and that got me thinking about a school project I did when I was really little for math class, where I had to talk to one of my parents about how they use math in their job because math is everywhere. And I think my dad told me something about using math to calculate the mileage that he'd driven so that he can get his fuel reimbursement for his job. Remembering that also got me thinking about how the same idea can be applied to art. Art can be found in almost any career. Sometimes it's a direct influence or it's part of someone's career trajectory, like a film or TV show that inspired someone to pursue a particular path or... Similarly to Ryan's situation, a medical textbook with realistic, painstakingly detailed anatomical drawings or 3D animations of anatomy that gets used to help a doctor understand the human body. Another obvious example is that nearly every workplace needs a graphic designer in some respect. And then lots of workplaces curate playlists or choose radio stations that have music that reflect their particular brand. There are countless examples. So if art is this essential piece of nearly everyone's working life, why isn't arts education valued as much as math or science, even though both of those subjects have pretty close ties to the arts too? I went to a public performing arts school, shout out to the Perpich Center for Arts Education, and it was and still is constantly having to justify and fight for its existence and for its funding. To a lot of people, art is experienced as something frivolous instead of something vital. Art is such a huge part of my life that I can see its influence everywhere, but I guess it can be harder for some people to make those connections, and that's why robust funding for arts education is critical. 
We need to help kids to engage with art and appreciate the influence it has on the world around them in the same way we would with any other area of study. Art will almost certainly be a part of whatever work they do, but it will also inspire them, teach them to empathize, encourage their creativity, and help them to engage critically and emotionally with other people. Those are pretty great qualities to aspire to, right? So let's all support arts education and make sure everyone has access to it. Was that good enough for a little arts ed PSA? Or was that not coherent enough and really annoying? You decide! At any rate, let's move along to the interview, shall we? A couple of little production notes. First of all, Ryan was at work when we talked, so you will hear some scratching and digging and gravelly noises. And that is Ryan in one of Martha Stewart's gardens doing his job. Also, this episode is a little different. We talk about art and how it has inspired Ryan and uh, influenced his career. But we also talk a lot about gardening. Um, and what goes into designing a garden and uh, a little bit about Ryan's work. So it's a slightly different episode, but I think it is still just as enjoyable. So here is my chat with Ryan McAllister about Pierre-Joseph Redoute and Claude Monet. So why don't we talk about Redoute, Redoute, Redoute. Rodate, and I'm probably pronouncing it wrong too. Yes. So, start. Shall we start there? Sure. Um, where do you remember where you came across his work for, at the, for the first time? Through garden books, actually. Since mm. I've always done garden stuff, even when I was little. So even like in the library, all the garden sections they have all the just the regular garden books that teach you like the information books. But in the same area, they'd always have a version of his or some sort of collection of his because his kind of is since he does botanical drawings it kind of overlaps where his books are in the art section but there's other collections of his pictures that are in just like the garden sections and stuff or like the garden folio sections where it's like the books have information with pictures so i remember seeing them there many 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 years ago and stuff and always just kind of checking out and looking at all his stuff in there because it's it's botanical pictures but it's informative as well yeah, and like pictures that are really precise and um, as as close to accurate as they can be, I'd assume. Yeah, it's it's kind of a transition where it's still art technically because he's painting and drawing and all that kind of stuff, but he's it's not any different than art of like a subject where you have a person sitting there and you're painting a portrait of them, how they look. It's the same thing, but with still life but it's flowers but he was doing it from the scientific perspective so even though it looks beautiful because he's a good artist with everything at the same time it's like botanically accurate like pretty much the same as as you were seeing a photo of something so right and you know um from what i've read like botanical painting was becoming really popular in um in france and he you know, dissected flowers and studied them to um, really understand how they fit together, not just like uh, in, in terms of the, the beauty of them and kind of surface level stuff, but really understanding the biology. Um, yeah, he, he did it more from both from an artistic standpoint and scientific standpoint. So it wasn't just like I'm going to paint a pretty picture. So he was doing it, but uh, similar to how some artists just want to kind of understand their subjects to kind of get different versions of them, he would do the same thing so he could capture them as accurately as possible. So I guess it helps that it was just like flowers and 
fruits and all that kind of stuff where you have many options and can dissect them open and kind of learn from them in different ways instead of just a person sitting there. So the fact that it's something that's stationary, you can take your time and do what you want with it. So he'd learn about them before he would paint them so you can capture them as accurately as possible. Yeah. And it doesn't hurt if, you know, you have Marie Antoinette as your patron um, supplying you the money so that you can really take the time to uh, get that accuracy and, um, you know, study everything in minute detail. Exactly. That was, I think, one of the big benefits about it. So the fact that he liked to be so accurate and stuff with everything um, was a plus to begin with. And then the fact that... He had Marie Antoinette doing everything for him. Um, the fact that at that time it was known for such like an excess of everything, he had that extra incentive and benefit of her just wanting, just you know, spending money on technically nothing. You know, you don't have to draw a picture of a flower, but the fact that something as simple as that and having all this focus and everything. And at the time, not that they aren't anymore, but at the time um, in France, like roses in particular were were crazy crazy popular um that's when they really started hitting their heyday where they started hybridizing and all that kind of stuff um like napoleon's wife josephine was huge on roses and stuff so it was like in the french culture like crazy so of all his his art um, he did all different kinds of flowers and fruits and everything like that but i'd say he's most known for all of his roses and i think he has more rose drawings than more than anything else that he's done or at least as far as what's popular and stuff. So he took a real big focus on that, and that was real important to that culture at the time. So it kind of helped with yeah. being able to finance him and everything he was, in the, he was doing. Yeah. I find it really fascinating as well that he made, uh, you know, in, in relative terms, a smooth transition um, from the monarchy through the revolution and then um you know had both marie Antoinette and josephine bonaparte as uh, patrons exactly he's kind of lucky in that aspect since with the revolution all that kind of stuff they were the public was like against all the excess and stuff but i think the fact that they understood that a it was art and b the fact that it was botanical stuff it's mm-hmm. like nature and it's plants so that kind of it's not like he's paint, painting like buildings or jewels or anything like that that just shows like extreme wealth so i think that kind of helped taper it off a little bit to kind of keep him under the radar as far as all that was concerned yeah and you know painting the natural world which is absolutely beautiful but also working for the french academy of sciences and contributing something that can be appreciated by everyone it's like the natural world that is available to all and isn't necessarily restricted to the uh, aristocracy exactly that's a big big part of it as far as this like anybody can grow anything i mean obviously the poor can't have like these massive expansive gardens that like the nobility at the time did but even everyone like in their own little yard or their own little plot of land that they lived on could grow and do something so there is still a level of connection and attainability with it all with everything so it, it helped it to relate to everybody and i guess in its appreciation and saving it and all so i mean did you in addition to seeing these redoute drawings in in I don't know if it was textbooks or just diagrams, um, botanical diagrams. Have you ever seen any of his work in galleries or in a museum? I've seen them in the museums here and there. And then there's lots of collections of his books, similar to um, 
kind of like how Audubon has like the big folio of like with all the birds that he drew and there's like the original ones obviously that he did you know however many of those that are remaining and then they've replicated them all so that it essentially looks the exact same they've done the same with a lot of his stuff because it's such basically it's like scientific and botanical in that sense where it's like a, they make like great even if it's not on the wall like great big like folio books so i've seen those as well and then um you've seen a few i've seen a few of them in different museums from time to time you also notice either his or stuff that is either duplication of his or inspired by him kind of everywhere like think of how many people have just like random frame botanical prints like in their house or on dish towel or or ceramics or anything like that majority of that if it's not something that he initially drew it's something that was inspired by him or is done in the exact same way so there's lots of things out there that even look like his and aren't better because of him yeah yeah that particular style of having really fine extreme detail in the plants themselves but kind of isolating them so it's just the plant on like a, a plain background that really lends itself to it makes it other kinds of design yeah it, it makes it stand out but like in a subtle way like all the backgrounds obviously are different shades of like white and cream and all that kind of stuff mm-hmm. um so that kind of puts the plants in the forefront but at the same time it makes it easy for it to like kind of blend into stuff as well so depending on how you look at it you can look at it with like attention to the details if it was almost medical since it is like on a, a light or a white background it makes everything else pop so you can kind of pay more attention to the detail of every little thing he did because he has all kinds of little details on there, the veins of the leaves the if it's a rose the thorns on the rose every like kind of little thing he has a lot of detail in it yeah do you still see his work now when you're i don't know how much research you have to do for gardening or looking things up looking up plants and stuff do you do you still come across it mm-hmm. um a lot of garden books have stuff in it and it's kind of a combination of like when i was in school um I majored in biology and horticulture, so all my textbooks, all the all the biology books and the botany books that I had, um, they didn't use his stuff per se, but they had a similar style, almost kind of like one of those Grey's Anatomy medical books where they have like the body split open. They would do the exact same thing with the different parts of the plants, you know, be it a tree or a bush or different parts of a flower, different parts of the fruit. It's all in that same in that same vein. And his is essentially the same thing, but instead of like you know lines numbering it to each little part and having it all dissected, his is more from the artistic standpoint where it's botanically accurate, but then it's showcasing like the shape and the color and all that kind of stuff that the that the diagrams in textbooks would just kind of either leave black and white and just have be more information based um a lot of gardening books still have that kind of stuff in them some gardening catalogs still have it especially roses is an easy one to focus on a lot of the roses that he did since you know this was a couple hundred years ago either they don't exist anymore or if they do they're not anything that's popular or anything they're kind of like the ones that they use to kind of breed all of the new varieties that we have now so especially some of the antique rose bushes or the antique rose catalogs and stuff, they may showcase them because there might not be any living specimens of these plants anymore other than his pictures. And they might, they'll show them sometimes in the book to show like the parents of something that they're selling or whatever to kind of give you an idea of what it looks like. Mm. Yeah. So there is kind of like a historical aspect to it too. Cause it's almost like in the museum, how they might have like dinosaur bones or something for animals that don't exist anymore. Some of his stuff, cause it's so accurate. It's like the only, 
depiction of what some of these things look like um, that we know because they don't exist anymore, which doesn't really seem important, but for a lot of things it is for, for fruits and for everything, just for breeding and for everything like that. You kind of got to know what you're working with. Yeah. So with, I mean, I, I don't know very much about gardening at all, but so like, are there types of flowers that were bred into and out of existence um, just to like look for particular uh, characteristics or, or something? Or? Yeah, more so there's different varieties of things. And this is true for most anything and things, I guess, similar to like clothing or anything else, things go in fashion, out of fashion. And that's true for both uh, a type of flower versus colors or shapes or things like that. Some like gladiolus, for example, were super popular, like in the fifties and the sixties. And then they became like funeral flowers and nobody wanted them anymore. And now they're becoming popular again. Roses obviously are always popular, but how the different types and, and the way that they grown are grown are that's what changes so i don't know maybe aside from getting gifts like maybe i don't know 20 or so 20 30 years ago the most popular were the hybrid teas which are the ones like when you think of a rose like if you're getting a bouquet of roses that's what that is like the big you know red or pink or white like perfect looking rose um like you think like a long stem that was really popular which is kind of difficult to grow in the garden to look like that versus now taste of change so people in the gardens other than like at a botanic gardens don't grow those i mean they, they're still the most popular but their popularity has kind of gone down a little bit in exchange for more like shrubby old-fashioned roses like all the david austin roses which are the ones that are they kind of have that older rose shape where there's like more petals and they're more full and they smell better um they may not have the best stems or they might but they're not like that other rose kind of shape that's in your head like if you're getting a dozen roses like if you got a dozen of those they wouldn't look anything like what you're thinking and stuff so there's a lot of shifts and things um colors patterns all that kind of stuff just like anything else yeah that's interesting see you maybe we should talk about claude monet yep easy um, one yeah and like such a, an obvious contrast but is is impressionism um in general and monet's work in particular does that affect you more in your work from an, an inspiration standpoint or uh, i guess s same question as the the first guy um how did you come across his work first i think it's you know something that's probably ever present in everyone's life yeah i think with him it's more it's more just everybody knows him i mean i remember from school when i was little you just learned him in art class um mm -hmm. the fact that my mom is an artist that kind of helped too so even before school i already know who it was but he's i'd say he's probably like in the kind of the top five of artists that like most any even child would would be able to know or somewhat recognize or something so it's yeah. kind of more common but the reason why it's common is because he's good at what he did and just so many examples of it are still around and people are still loving it at this point so mm -hmm. there's a why it's around yeah so what about his work do you enjoy engage with kind of it's actually kind of like what you said as far as the contrast so Rodote I like because everything is real specific like he, it's, it's true to life like he finds a rose in the garden he cuts it he puts it in whatever to paint it and he you know gives you it's his best version of it to be as accurate as possible and like 
when you look at one of his pictures, it, it looks like how it looks if you were holding it in your hand. Whereas Monet is kind of the opposite. He's not so much on the individual as he, as he is like the whole. And for me, I like that, or at least it works for me and gives me inspiration because from a garden standpoint, when you're doing gardens and flower gardens and all that kind of stuff, when you're obviously like up close to a plant, you can look at each individual one and appreciate it that way. But lots of times when you're in a garden, you're not so much looking at each individual flower or even each individual plant. You're looking at the garden as like a whole. And in that case, it kind of blends together or the differences you're noticing. It's not each individual flower. It's like the different colors and the textures or the gradients of the plants. And I think Monet kind of captures that a bit more. So a lot of his stuff, because it's the Impressionist stuff, it's all, you know, you, you, it's hard to kind of make out each individual little thing he has. But when you look at it as a whole, it all works. Yeah, yeah. And that totally makes sense. Like, you know, anybody who's walked through a garden before, you, you definitely see the individual plants and you can stop and take time if something catches your eye to, you know, examine things a bit more closely. But in general you're taking in the entire landscape around you and actually you know knowing how both of those things work together understanding the plants as individuals but also having a an overall view holistically of how the garden should fit together exactly because you're looking at a garden so a garden isn't just one flower a garden is everything it's all the flowers it's all the foliage it's how they compare contrast how light works against them everything and that's kind of what he captures he he like if you look at his pictures you can see you can see the different shades of light in it you can see like if there's water in his picture he makes it look like it's moving he makes it look like it's something real when you're outside in the garden it kind of it does look that exact same way like you notice all those little details whether you're recognizing it or not you're not just looking at just oh a flower like when you say garden it's everything all working together yeah so uh, how, how what i don't know if there's a like a standard divide between aesthetics and functionality when it comes to designing a garden but does it, it depend on I, I suppose it depends on what the intended purpose for the garden is and who is commissioning the work and whether it's a, a garden that's being used for other things or if it's just purely for people to look at. Yeah, there's all different ways and stuff like that. Like, for example, vegetable gardens, like I would say those are probably my favorite from just a growing standpoint, just, I don't know, partly because it's something that one, you can eat it like that doesn't hurt. And then the fact, I think, cause vegetables are so quick, it's not like you're planting a tree and have to wait 20 years to like, kind of get the result out of it. Cause I'm kind of impatient. So with vegetables, you kind of get stuff in a couple months. So gardens like that though, because you're growing something that's, that's, such in a finite amount of time, that's when you have things kind of more lined up and you kind of want to focus on everything almost as an individual or at least in a group or something symmetrical where it all looks the same in that standpoint as opposed to, let's say, a flower garden where, yeah, if you were doing a flower garden for like some type of commercial purposes, you would just have it growing in rows in that way just because you're going to cut them. But if it's for pleasure purposes, that's where you kind of have everything look, I guess, kind of more. That's actually kind of why people still have everything like all kind of mixed in and have it like as a flower garden. And Monet was a big part of that because he just didn't paint stuff like he actually grew everything and had his own garden. So he was painting from his garden. So he's not it, it, it kind of helped that he wasn't someone like, oh, this is a subject that's pretty. I'll paint it like it's something that he actually knew about and had involvement with so you can kind of see a little bit of himself inside of everything that he did and you know choosing the 
structure of the thing that he was going to be painting and wanting to paint the natural world, but also deciding what that what the nature that he was painting would look like. And if you're invested in something that you're doing in that way, it's going to come out better or you're going to put that much more of yourself into it. It's not like he just went to like somebody's house and painted their garden. It's like, okay, I'm done with it. The fact that it was things of his and everything like that, you can you can see where he has like that different appreciation and things since he was involved with growing them or at least having them and he wants to kind of pass that along right right and i think even vegetable gardens even gardens that are more about function than they are about the aesthetics just you know symmetry is really appealing to uh, the ve- human vegetable eye gardens and- can be pretty though too and it's yeah. it's it kind of has dual purpose for like vegetable gardens like at least what i grow it is very appealing to the eye and it's not just for the case of having it look symmetrical and look perfect but at least in that case the plants actually grow better that way i mean it kind of doesn't make sense when you have them kind of almost like lined up by soldiers and everything real strict and rigid everything kind of has their own little space to grow they're not competing with each other because if you've planned it out right you space stuff out um, appropriately to whatever it needs so that um, each has like its own individual space and it can fill that space and it's not going to compete with all of its neighbors, whereas something like in a wild, like flower garden, something would. So, it you could still have a vegetable garden look really, really pretty. And a lot of vegetables are really ornamental. Like you can mix. There's certain vegetables. A lot of people don't know how things grow. They just see stuff at the grocery store and they don't realize like what the plants that they grow on look like. Something like eggplant, for example, their plants look like tiny little trees, like three mm-hmm. or four feet tall. You can blend those right into the garden. Artichoke plants are like this real pretty gray-green color. Now they have uh, lots of like lettuces and different plants like that where it's a vegetable, so you obviously know what it is, but you can mix stuff into like your flower garden to be pretty slick about it. And sometimes you might not even recognize that it's a vegetable. Yeah, it is amazing to me how often you come across things that in the supermarket that you have absolutely no idea how it grows naturally or you know but even whether it's grown underground or on a bush or a tree or whatever or at least that's that's the situation for me i'm sure that's not the same for you not for um, me but it always surprises me where like you ask people how stuff grows and i mean even things that are common like pineapple or mm-hmm. semi-common i guess like asparagus or something you ask people what they grow on and there's people who think pineapples grow on trees. Yeah. They think that this grows on this and they have like no idea where some of this stuff comes from, which is, it's kind of sad, really. It's like, okay, you're eating it and you have no clue. I mean, you know, everybody knows apples grow on a, on a tree. You should kind of know where most basic things, what they grow on. Yeah. yeah you'd be surprised. Yeah. What, what is the split in your work in, in terms of um, what types of gardens you're, you're growing? Um, everything. Yeah. <laughs> I grow, yeah, everything. Personal favorite. I just, I like vegetable gardens the most mm-hmm. um, for like the reasons I said. And then second to those, I like the flowers. But then in addition to that, there's tons of gardens with like different trees or different shrubs or depends what it is. So, I mean, I grow a bit of everything and it, it kind of changes. Actually, that makes it kind of nice though. Cause when I get bored of one, I can kind of move on to the other one and stuff where it keeps it always somewhat interesting because at any point in time there's always something how much creative input do you have in into how gardens are structured and oh um, tons. tons oh tons yeah that's oh amazing. yeah oh yeah oh yeah i can do i have all kinds of stuff i have lots of it's not just like plant this and go like a lot right. of the gardens i can just kind of do whatever i want 
I kind of know the style to kind of stick within and stuff, but I also have lots of room to kind of experiment and do things. So it kind of depends on which garden it is and where it's at, but I have great amount of influence or freedom to kind of do things. Yeah. So, which is nice. So it's kind of a combo. Like some gardens have been here forever to where like they don't change. They just kind of do their own thing every kind of year. So they don't really need to change. And then other gardens are always changing and evolving in different ways. And we make new gardens every year in addition because of all the space and everything. So I have tons of freedom with all that. Yeah. So makes it fun that way. And that's me. Try different things out. See what works, what doesn't. Similar to like a house where every year or so often like you you want to move the furniture around or every couple of years you want to paint and restyle. It's the exact same way. Like you see stuff in different areas and you're like, Oh, this might work better over here or these aren't growing well here. And they've been here for a few years. Let's dig them up and move them over here. And we do all that kind of stuff all the time, which it can be a bit hectic because there's a lot of stuff to do that with, but it's actually kind of nice having that freedom and stuff. So like we just moved a whole bunch of stuff the past couple months to make some new open areas. So that way in the springtime, when it's planting time for a lot of things, we have all these new open areas that were filled with stuff previously and we can kind of start new with them all. Yeah. And in that way, it's like what we were talking about before, the kind of intersection between the, the scientific and the practical with artistic endeavors you know being able to have a specific function in mind for the garden but also in inject your own vision for what it should look like and how everything should fit together and exactly and that's one of my big things too like when i was in school because i went to school for all this as well too and way back when there used to be a divide when you would um in your classes uh or like in the majors and stuff um for all the in all the horticulture and plant sciences a lot of people would go there was kind of the landscape architecture route and then there was the more botany horticulture route and i was more the botany kind of route which is kind of more the scientific part of it all like that's where you had to do like plant breeding and learn about like this does this and why and this how it grows and all the forms and the structures and all that kind of stuff whereas the landscape architecture, they learned about that too, but just like in a very basic, they might just have like a couple classes on it or just like kind of like just the, the, the more minimal basic stuff and they were more focused on architecture. So they had to do more like the design aspect and all that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, and the, and I, I had to learn that part as well, but I always noticed that the people who did all like the more landscape architecture and all that kind of stuff, they're the ones who – they would look at things from a design standpoint, but still have to call in a horticulturist or a botanist as far as knowing what would grow where. Because when you're planting anything outside, it's not just you're in the house like, oh, this paint color works well with this fabric and this kind of stuff. It's more like, okay, this plant's color looks right, but how big is it going to get in five years? Does it like sun? Does it like shade? Can it live in the ground? So there still is a lot of science to doing with it. There's like all these different levels since you're working with something that's alive that people don't always realize you have to put into consideration. Yeah. And understanding how different plants will interact with each other and all of that. Um, yeah, it's, it's so so much more complicated than uh, rearranging furniture. Yeah, and that's one of the, I guess it took me a while to develop it, but I think one of the skills that I pride myself on is when I am doing this kind of stuff with all my years of it is when I'm planting something, I'm not looking at what it looks like, like when I'm planting it, like a lot of people will do or people who aren't familiar with it. Like they'll, you know, they'll buy a plant and they'll put it wherever they want and they'll put it together. Or let's say they're planting like five plants. I'll plant them close together because they're like, Oh, we want it to look full and they plant them close together. So that way when it's all planted, it looks pretty, but it's like, you can't plant it that way. You got to think in your head, like what that bush or what it's going to look like 
two years down the road, four years down the road and plant them that way to allow them to kind of grow. It's like trying to keep baby clothes on you as you grow up and get older. It kind of doesn't work that way. So you kind of got to work with them Mm -hmm. a little differently. Yeah. And the immediate gratification of having this like perfectly aesthetically pleasing garden can't come when you're dealing, you know, with living things it's not the same as you know uh having five paintings that you want to put in a specific arrangement on the wall it's exactly you put the paintings on the wall and it's done like it's gonna stay looking like that if you left them there for years it's gonna look like that you put five rose bushes in the ground a few years from now it's not gonna look like how when you planted it so you kind of gotta plan it from the long run from the get-go and stuff yeah yeah people don't realize that that's like the biggest, I think that's actually the biggest, like one, years and years ago when I used to work in nurseries and all that kind of stuff, that was like kind of the biggest misconception people would realize or wouldn't realize like either A, how fast or slow something grows or what something looks like. Like they might find something that's real pretty flowers, but then they're focused just on that. And it's like that plant's going to have flowers like three weeks of the year. You need a plan on the other 49 weeks of the year what the plant looks like. Do you like the foliage? Is it something that's going to be ugly? And people kind of don't take that stuff into consideration just because flowers are kind of a bit showy and just kind of take all the attention. You have a uh, complicated job. Yeah, but it's fun. Yeah, and it's so amazing to have something that you you love so much that um, gets to change and evolve with you constantly. Change and evolve, but also that responsibility of you gotta keep everything alive. Mm-hmm. So it's yeah. so having not any. Yeah, having constants. Um, you know the the care for each individual plant probably doesn't change. And even if you're rearranging things, having to consider the specific needs of each plant, um, no matter what you do. Yeah. It's not any different than having pets or a kid. It's like, you gotta, gotta nurture it and give it what it needs in order to not just keep alive and drive and what it's doing. You can't really just ignore it. So a lot of work or a lot of attention at the very least. Yeah. Cool. Um, I think that is a, uh, a solid chat, as Perfect. they say. Um, if anybody listening would like to find out more about you and your work or um, what you're up to these days, how can they find you? Um, easiest way is on the Martha blog. They post everything that is going on, on around the farm, so it's not all about me, but mm-hmm. especially when it's growing season, I'm on there like every week or at least work that I do in garden focuses heavily on it most of the year. I mean, it's not as much right now since it's winter time. Um, so there's always that kind of stuff. And then, um, my Instagram as well. I have, I post pictures all the time of what's going on here, all the different flowers and vegetables. I like to show off what I grow and all that kind of stuff. So mm-hmm. that's always an easy way as well. Yeah. What's, uh, what's your Instagram handle? Oh, my name, Ryan McAllister one, Always stuff on there. What's going on? Sounds good. Yeah. I really appreciate you taking time out of your uh, busy day. Oh, I've been pruning flowers the whole time I've been talking to you. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Uh, It's good to be able to multitask. Um, Well, thank you very much for talking to me. No problem. fun. That was awesome, right? Objectively. Like, undeniably awesome. Thanks again to Ryan for chatting with me. Uh, Okay, so now, recommendations. 
Firstly, I saw Late Night. It's a movie. It's a comedy. It's written by and starring Mindy Kaling, also starring Emma Thompson. It's really funny and really sweet. In a lot of ways, it's got a conventional romantic comedy structure, but it's a fresh take on those conventions. It's smart and kind and puts women front and center, both on screen and behind the scenes, which we love in this Kami Pinko feminist podcast. And also, Emma Thompson is just the best. I love her so much and I feel like I'm going to explode when I see her because I can't take how much I love her. So go and see Late Night, please. I also really liked the first episode of Alternatinos. It's a sketch show starring Arturo Castro, who you might know from Broad City and or Narcos. It's got a lot of funny stuff in it, and I'm excited to see where it goes from here because I think he's a really funny guy. So check that out if you're into sketch comedy. That's on Comedy Central. And lastly, I saw The Last Black Man in San Francisco, which is really incredible. Uh, It's an indie movie about the relationship that a young black man in San Francisco has with the house in which he grew up and with his best friend. It deals with so many subjects gentrification, grief, love, friendship, race, socioeconomics, family, to name a few. And if that sounds kind of heavy, it is at times, but it's also incredibly light and poetic and moving, and it's shot so beautifully. If you get a chance to see it, you definitely should. There, now you have some stuff to watch. You're welcome. So let's wrap this up, shall we? Follow me on social media, please at Spark Parade. Please rate and review the show wherever you download it or stream it. And I think that's it. Be good. Stay out of trouble. Have a fun week. Until next time. Bye. You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, activities, excursions, and more in one place to make your trip truly unforgettable. Viator has over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from. Everything from simple tours to extreme adventures and all the niche, interesting stuff in between. So you can plan something that everyone you're traveling with will enjoy. Real traveler reviews give the inside scoop from people who've already been on the experiences you're considering. So you can plan with confidence. Free cancellation helps you plan for the unexpected. And 24-7 customer support means you can travel worry-free. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.